In Judges 16, 23-31, in the New International Version, we read, Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our god has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste to our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servants who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women, all the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about three hundred men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars of the temple where they stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back, and they buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol, in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had led Israel twenty years. Samson, old lucky seven himself, is one of the great heroes of the faith listed in Hebrews 11. And as we are going to see in a bit, there is a reason for that, but one that is not as readily as apparent as with many of the other characters that we've already talked about in this series. And to show you what I mean, we are going to start today off a little bit different than how we have been, by looking not at Hebrews 11, but instead at number 6. Because it is there where we read God telling Moses that if someone wants to make a vow of dedication to the Lord, they can make the vow of the Nazarite. Not to drink strong drink or go near dead bodies or even cut their hair. These are the vows that if you make them, you are a Nazarite. The vows of a person specially dedicating themselves to the Lord. And now, seeing these vows laid out for us... Now we can turn to Judges 13, where we will be met with the story of the man who is a great hero of our faith, but who also, nevertheless, makes and breaks each of these vows to God. And this story begins with a familiar series of events in the book of Judges. The Israelites, we are told, again did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and as a result, the Philistines rose up, placing God's people in chains for forty years. To address this persecution, one day an angel of the Lord came to an Israelite couple who we are told were up until that point unable to have a child of their own. A son you will have, the angel says, and you will dedicate him to the Lord. He will be a Nazarite all of his life, from the womb until the day he dies, and he will save the people from Philistine. Presumably a number of years pass before we meet this young Nazarite. And while the Lord was undoubtedly with Samson, I think it's fair to say that this favor shown by God went to the boy's head. 
Because far from being what we would think of as a godly man, or a good man, or even really a decent human being, Samson was what you would expect of someone who has been told all of his life that he was set apart from his peers for something spectacular. For Samson is very overinflated. Something we see very readily, as within the first paragraph of meeting our hero, we hear him act in exactly the way that you would expect someone with a bit too much steam in them to act. For as our story begins, Samson, we are told, as many a young man has before him, just developed wide eyes for the ladies. One in particular, a young woman from the region of Timna, a land famed for its vineyards. And so Samson rushed to his father and said to him, There is a girl, get her for me to be my wife. And if that sounds a bit abrupt, well, that's because it is. That would have been a terribly rude thing to say to your father in those days. Not because your dad didn't have a part to play in arranging marriages, but more because this was not a culture where you ordered your parents around, particularly your dad. That would have been a huge taboo, but... As we read on now in Judges chapter 14, we quickly see that there was another problem with this match as well, for it just so happened that this woman from Timna happened to be a Philistine, a poor choice for a mate to be certain, considering how the Philistines were the great oppressors of Samson's people, and of course also that whole pesky matter of that destiny that Samson's parents knew that he had to be the one to drive these Philistines from the land. And while those two things alone really should have been enough to make the father shake his head and say, no, no, obviously no, and then discipline his son for being so precocious, Samson, we read in the end, got the upper hand because Samson was a young man who was deeply twitterpated, and so he was very insistent. And in the end, the match was arranged, and the whole family went to meet the new in-laws in the land of Timna, a land that again was known for its lush vineyards and bountiful wine. And as the wedding proceeded, we are told they feasted for many days. While it does not explicitly say, as it would be a horrible affront to your host to deny their hospitality, it would be the safer bet in my books to say that the first vow of the Nazarite Samson not to drink strong drink was almost certainly broken in those days. Around the time of the wedding, we read Samson, to protect his family, killed a lion. It had attacked, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, and he just wrecked that cat up. After he left the body near the path that he traveled. And a while later, Samson returned, and he saw that apparently the bees of Israel have a very poor understanding of prime bee real estate, because they had made a hive for themselves in that same lion's remains. And while most lesser men would likely think, well, that's gross, and continue on their way, Samson, we are told, was not like most men, for he bent right on down and scooped up a big old handful of that corpse honey, and as he ate it, he thought to himself, huh, I think I could use this to pull a fast one on my wedding guests. And so it was that Samson presented the attendees at his wedding with a riddle. Answer this Riddle, he told them, and I will give each of you a set of linen garments and a set of clothes. The riddle is this. 
Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And all those who heard him were left scratching their heads. Now I, Russell, am not a riddle aficionado, to be sure. In fact, I freely admit that I am laughably bad at them, but... As knowing the answer to this particular riddle kind of depends on you having seen the same lion that Samson did, I can't help but think that this might not have been quite fair, and apparently his guests would have agreed with me, as over the days of the wedding we read them getting angrier and angrier, more desperate trying to figure out the answer, until, and you can read this in chapter 14, verse 15, they go to Samson's new bride, and they give her an ultimatum that I can't help but think really would have killed the mood of the festivities. Tell us the answer to this riddle, or we will literally burn your house down. And so Samson's wife, now put in an impossible position, goes to her new husband and finds out the answer and tells her guests. The guests then answer Samson his riddle, but far from taking this in stride, we read that the young Nazarite flips right out, leaves the party, goes to a nearby Philistine town, and straight up kills like 30 people, taking their clothes to pay off his guests. And well, I suppose that is when the second vow of the Nazarite was broken. And from here, things kind of spin out of control real fast. For this casual act of mass murder is met by the Philistines in the area predictably poorly. His wife, who I am pretty sure at this point he has already married by my understanding of wedding customs of the time, is nevertheless, inside of that violence, hastily married off to somebody else that was also in attendance at the wedding because... Well, I guess the family's all out, so it's just practical to do it, but Samson takes that news real poorly. Hundreds, if not thousands of Philistines are killed over the next chapters, to which the authorities dedicate themselves to capturing Samson, something that they come close to doing time and time again, but due to Samson's great strength gifted him by the Lord, all attempts that are made, we are told, come up short. But... What does the young, headstrong Nazarite do with all of this heat on him? Well, a lesser man you would expect to go into hiding. After all, even though God was clearly helping Samson escape the powers that be, that isn't really much of an excuse to put God to the test by tempting fate so foolishly. But again, Samson didn't see things the way that lesser men did. Because next we read that one day, calm as a cucumber, he saw and fell in love instantly with a new woman named Delilah. And so we predictably read that as Samson now looked to settle in with this new lady, the word spread to the Philistines where he was. But the Philistines we read were smart because they were afraid. After all, from their perspective, this one young man had killed thousands of their countrymen over a bad riddle. And to do that, they had seen that Samson had committed these acts in ways clearly impossible unless there was some god aiding and embedding him. So instead of rushing in, the Philistines, we read, set a honeypot trap. We read they came to Delilah. Figure out how to stop this guy and you will be rich. Figure out where this guy's strength comes from and you will have so much silver that you won't even know what to do with it. So Delilah sets the work. Where does your strength come from, Samson? To which he replies, tie me up and I will be weak. So she does, and the Philistines rush in to capture him. He breaks free and a few more are added to the toll. 
At this point, you would figure Samson would have caught on that this girl was bad news, but my guess is is that his head was likely either a little bit too big to think he was in any real danger, either that or his eyes for this girl were big enough to not see the red flags, probably some combination of the two, but we read that again Delilah comes to Samson. Where does your strength come from? Weave my hair in a loom and I will be powerless. So she does this as he sleeps, which I think it is fair to be impressed that she pulls that off without waking him up. And then the Philistines rush in, Samson breaks free predictably, and a few more are added to the tally. Finally, she asks again, this time in tears. Tell me the secret of your strength. Fine, he answers, I'm imagining somewhat flabbergasted. Cut my hair and I will be powerless. And so that night, the last vow of the Nazarite was broken. The spirit of the Lord left Samson, as can be seen by his strength deserting him. Samson didn't lose his power because his hair was cut, but instead simply because in that action, it was made pretty clear that Samson cared more for himself than his relationship with God. One of the great lessons from the book of Judges on display right there. Turn your back on God, push him away, and things go bad. The Philistines, we read, gouged out Samson's eyes when they caught him, which... Ew. But also, as his lust kind of is what caused all his problems in the first place, uh, first with his first wife and then with Delilah, maybe also a little fitting of a punishment. But then Samson was brought before the people of Philistine, their leaders, who were all in the same large building, gathered to jeer at this man who had hurt them all so much. And as they threw their curses at him, humiliating him in the ways they found most detestable, we read that Samson did something deeply out of character. As he stood there, stripped, broken, beaten, blind, we read he prayed. He truly humbled himself before God for the first time in the story, and following that, God's spirit returned for one last time to this failed Nazarite. And together, Samson knocked over the support pillars of the building. And in that one act of sacrifice, the Israelites, after 40 long years in chains, were finally free. And Samson earned himself the title, rightfully so, a hero of the faith. In the story of Samson, there are... A number, but let's say two things that you can learn that will help us with our Christian faith today. The first is that God is really good at getting what he wills done. In this story, first Samson's father and then Samson himself really seem to go out of their way to act in ways that appear to fly in the face of God's plan. Samson's father knows that Samson is to play a role in delivering the Israel from the Philistines, and yet he agrees to marry his son off to one of their daughters. Samson knows that he is to live as a Nazarite, and yet on two, if not a number more separate occasions, he violates the Nazarite vows with abandon. Yet, despite all this, still in the end, Israel is delivered from the Philistines. This is a good truth to keep in mind, not because it gives us a free pass to act against God, but instead because I think it acts to keep our thinking somewhat in line. 
For many of us, I think we are often quick to assume that God's will either depends on us to get done or won't get done because of it. Not so much, this story tells us. We are absolutely called to, by God to join him in doing his will, building his kingdom. But keep in mind that in the end, God will see done what needs to be done, regardless of we try to hijack things or railroad things, or if we're afraid that our ineptitude will mean they won't get done. And that is wonderfully freeing. Because that means that if you feel like you are screwing everything up as you stumble blindly in your faith, I can guarantee you that you are not. And B, it means that if you feel like you are far too important to God's plan to ever think of passing those reins to others, again, I guarantee you that you are not. So either way, trust God as you seek to serve him and just try your best. He has been at this kingdom building thing just for a very long time. And if he can use someone like Samson, who for most of his story is really just looking out to build himself up, I can guarantee you that as long as you are trying to do right and serve God, he will be able to use you just fine. And then there is the second thing to take from this story. And that, that is this. If we reach out to God, we will quickly find out that he is already reaching out to us. In my mind, Samson's story is one that kind of echoes that of Israel throughout the book of Judges. From the womb, he is consecrated, set apart for service to the Lord. And while undoubtedly that is a wonderful thing, far from this causing Samson or Israel to double down in their relationship with God, it instead kind of just goes to their head. They make decisions that benefit themselves. They choose themselves and their own wants over God. Because why care about the Lord when you are the chosen one? Kind of means you already have God's favor unlocked, doesn't it? And that way of thinking, it just backfires horrifically, as it always does. This is the story of Samson, Israel, and I, I dare say much of the church and the people in it as well. We are the ones that God will work through, and far from taking that and running with it, using it as fuel to go as far as we can, often we just rest on that, thinking of ourselves as above it all, because God chose us. But if the story of Judges and Samson says anything, it says first that this way of thinking ends very poorly, but it then also says something else as well. It says one of the great assurances in all of Scripture. Samson was a man who turned his back on God. He turned his back on God to the point that the spirit left him. His strength literally drained out of his body. But then in his moment of despair, he again reached out. And what happened? God, who should have had nothing to do with him, instead grabbed hold of Samson's hand again. This is the second point to take away from the story, that far past the point where you would think it prudent for God to accept someone, he will if they turn to him. This is not a message to take as an excuse to go out and do as Samson does, choosing yourself into the last possible moment. I mean, obviously this story isn't saying that. Samson really only ends up blinding on the chopping block before his enemies because he chose himself over God as often as he did. But instead, just 
no matter how much you feel that you have fallen and no matter how much you feel that you do not deserve God's love because of all that you have done, know that in spite of all that, God still has his hand out waiting for you to grab it. These are the two truths for our Christian faith to take from the story of Samson. First, that God's will will be done, sometimes regardless of our efforts. And second, that God is always reaching out. So I say, if you need these two truths, please take them to heart.